Let me now ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today is the next to last message, message on the life of David. Next week we will finish up and then uh, we'll have a short series on something, something out of the Bible. And then uh, we will look at the book of Romans coming up, the entire epistle to the Romans. I've been away from Paul too long. I'm missing him. But would you now please open your Bibles? I, I said that, didn't I? The second Samuel. And we're in chapter 20. And as the great theologian Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. And I see a lot of you people who aren't boomers don't know much about deja vu. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young had an album entitled what? Deja Vu. Had some great songs on it. But it just seems like there's a repetitive cycle in this book of rebellion uh, against the king and of slaughter and in some ways incredible mistreatment of women and in other ways, a recognition of the profound wisdom of women in the same chapter. So I know these chapters are long, and I know they're attention-challenging, especially if you're a phone person. And I know if you are, and I see you if you do it. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. But uh, let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word, and it's God's Word we should give attention to. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. Worthless man is a translation of the word Belial, son of Belial, which is very close to saying a son of the devil. His name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, and the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to the Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines, whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. And so Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelothites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. But when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them, 
Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's left hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in the uh, Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask and counsel. Uh, asked counsel at Abel, and so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's an unusual statement. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the armies of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray and ask for light today. We ask for help that we might be able to benefit from this time of the preaching of your word. We do pray that the Holy Spirit 
would be at work bringing about illumination and opening our hearts to receive the teaching of this passage so that we may be more and more conformed to the image of Christ and may by degree to degree be transformed by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so the title of our sermon today is The Shakeable Kingdom and How Shakeable It Is. It's almost as if David is playing whack-a-mole with people rebelling against him. It just seems like every time he turns, there's another rebellion. The sword truly has not departed from his house or his nation. David never regains the restoration of the kingdom in any way that he would have wanted. Uh, it keeps get, getting interrupted, and there's no re-coronation, there's no big ceremony, there's no blowing of the horns and people bowing down in obeisance to the king. It's just trouble after trouble after trouble for David. And so this kingdom is anything but unshakable. And the reason is, is that David is a flawed person. And if that shocks you, don't get too shocked about it. Because aren't we all flawed people? We need a king better than David. We need a king who can do for his kingdom what David could never accomplish. David was a man. He was a fallen man. Seems like the older he got, the worse it got for those in his kingdom. And he's got a lot of problems. And his problem, number one, is Joab, and essentially what happens today is Joab operates and completes a coup of the kingdom. He does it single-handedly. Joab is someone you could never turn your back on and someone who, if he bends over, you never take your eyes off of him or he will do you in in a moment. But no sooner had the rebellion been defeated that is, uh, the one we looked at in the last chapter, but a new one arises. This time, a Benjaminite named Sheba, and that's very important for you to know, that a Benjaminite is of, in reference to, the house of Saul. It just seems like Saul and his minions and his family were a thorn in the side of David forever. They were always causing problems to him. And so as a result of that, David is having to deal again generationally with this guy named Sheba, the son of Bichri, who's the one who instigates the insurgents. Some have suggested that Sheba's father, Bichri, may be Becherath, named in Saul's genealogy back in 1 Samuel 9. So he's actually... Saul's relative, and this may partly explain why he moves with such zeal against David. All this happens, chapter 19 sort of bleeds into chapter 20, at the location of Gilgal. And so chapter 20 begins with a reference to a man of Belial, a worthless man, who happened to be there at Gilgal, and his revolt begins during the meeting described in chapter 19. The other link between these chapters is the theme of division between Israel and Judah. 
They never did really come together and form one people. There are always the ten tribes called Israel and the tribes called Judah. Judah was the southern group of tribes where Jerusalem is. Uh, the ten tribes were more toward the north. And so we see that there was division between these two. It never did happen. Uh, the covenant renewal that was supposed to occur in Gilgal ended in quarreling, and Sheba's revolt happened as a result of this division. Both of these chapters describe David's return to the throne, but there's no glory in it. David has, in some respects, experienced a resurrection. His kingdom had. But Sheba's revolts uh, reverse the claim of the men of Israel. In 1940, uh, chapter 19, verse 43, they claimed ten parts to David and to one part for Judah. But Sheba concluded from the attitude of the men of Judah that the northern tribes had no part in David. They anticipated the claim later made by the northern tribes in 1 Kings where no part in David became a rallying cry of Jeroboam and eventually the two kingdoms, the tribes, split, one into the northern kingdom, one into the southern kingdom. Now, we have uh, been witnessing that. Uh, the northern tribes are breaking away. Uh, Sheba is uh, there to provide the leadership. Again, he's a Benjaminite. And for two chapters, the story has been building to David's restoration back to the capital of Jerusalem. But instead of really building up this as some sort of recoronation, it rather becomes anticlimactic. And then we run into something sad in verse Three, and that deals with the concubines. Now understand something about concubines. Concubines were certainly not in God's plan for the kingdom of Israel. Never. That was an adaptation to the ancient Near Eastern royalty and kingdoms surrounding David. And the concubines sort of were a signal or a feature of a kingdom and its power. Now, here in this text, some very interesting things occur regarding these concubines. These concubines were literally cloistered. Before dealing with the rebels, David first deals with the concubines, whom he left behind in his departure from Jerusalem and with whom his son Absalom had actually uh, sexually assaulted. The king puts them under house arrest, never has sexual relations with them again, and provides other necessities of life regarding the rationale for David doing so, confining the victims of Absalom's sexual assault under lock and key only adds insult to their injury. David's action may betray, betray a rather low view of women, I would say so. One writer says it this way, what a contrast between how David treats men and women. Shammai, who openly cursed the king, is forgiven. Mephibosheth, who may have been disloyal to David, receives back half of his kingdom or estate. 
But ten anonymous women who've never done anything disloyal to David are placed under lock and key and held incommunicado and denied a future except three meals a day and a bed to sleep on at night. That is misogynist any way you look at it. That is ill treatment of women. But back to the idea of concubines and their place in royalty in the ancient Near East, something here is very important. David has been building uh, his kingdom and his return again was anticlimactic. But David put them under guard to ensure that they would never be violated again since another civil war was erupting. More positively, putting the concubines in a safe place meant that David was back in charge, uh, the husband and guardian of the land. Perhaps the best way to understand verse 3 is a combination of these themes. David protected his concubines, which was a good and royal thing for him to do, but they had become widows. And that is a sign that Israel itself had been widowed from the kingdom. The fact that there were ten concubines might also point to a connection with the ten tribes of Israel. When David put his concubines in protective custody, he was symbolizing that the ten tribes were being restored to David's household. Imperiled by Sheba, David calls his new commander Amasa to raise the army. But Amasa was delayed. So David had removed Joab from his position in chapter 19, and when Amasa failed to carry out the orders, David put Abishai in charge. But it's Joab. If you put Abishai in charge, who's leading? Joab is. Joab led the army against Sheba, and the men even were called Joab's men. And Joab had gotten completely out of David's control. He killed Absalom against David's wishes. And he never, and now he has taken control of the mighty men of David, the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's personal bodyguard had become Joab again. Abishai was ordered to collect your Lord's servants and pursue him, but then in the very next verse, these same men are called Joab's men. Who was Abishai's Lord, David or Joab? What Joab did during the rebellion of Sheba amounts to a coup. Sheba's rebellion was never so dangerous as Absalom's rebellion, and the text parallels that uh, much between Absalom and Sheba as between Absalom and Joab. To defeat Sheba, Joab had to establish undefeated, undisputed control of the whole army, which was as possible as long as Amasa stood in his way. And so Joab goes up to greet Amasa, who shows up late, to the party, not the party, but the war. And so Joab is slick. He does something. His right hand is free. His left hand is also free, and his sword is on his left side. So while he reaches out to embrace Amasa and welcome him, and his right hand in those days would take the beard of the one being greeted, hold it, and embrace or kiss him on the cheek. That was a normal way to greet. Well, he, gets, he takes the right hand 
All of a sudden, he drops his sword. He bends down to pick it up, and before a massacre can even look, he thrust him upward with the sword, and everything inside fell out. And he killed him immediately. There's no doubt that he killed him immediately, even though he was wallowing in his blood. And so Joab murdered Amasa in Gibeon, uh, and he killed Amasa at a great stone. And so as a result of that, Joab's success in the rebellion of Sheba encouraged him to flout David's will again. And ultimately, in the book of 1 Kings, Joab will attempt to put Adonijah on the throne rather than Solomon. So Joab's method for killing Amasa was similar to the method used by his men in an early battle, battle at Gibeon. And so he covered up his intentions, kissing Amasa, calling him brother, in a similar way he did when he killed Abner. So Joab is a butcher. He's a killer. And he's very good at it. And seeing Amasa wallowing in blood, that causing a delay of the soldiers, he has him removed. And Sheba, meanwhile, escaped to the walled city of Abel Beth Maaka. Joab besieged the city. That is, he built a rampart uh, up to the gates of the city in order for them to come up and pound on the doors and ultimately uh, knock them open. And uh, while I was traveling uh, in the Holy Land, uh, it was last year, wasn't it? Last year, we went to... Uh, a place in Israel where Herod had built a fortress on top of a mountain and we saw where the Romans had besieged the city and you could literally see the ramp being built up to the city to enter the city. And that's precisely a military method that Joab had used here. But then there appears this woman. She's never named. No one ever talks about her. Except that she's very wise and she begins to give Joab the history of Abel. I'm not going to call it the other name because it's too hard to say, but let's just call it Abel. And so he, she begins to inform Joab how powerful this city was, what a place in the history of Israel it held, and that he didn't need to raise the whole city. He didn't need to uh, conquer the whole army. Just take one person. And Joab, probably for one of the few times in his whole life, actually listened to somebody. And it made sense to him. And so how she got the head and threw it over the wall, I don't know. But that's what the text says happened. And so the head rolled, and it was over. And Joab returns home. The wise woman uh, was listened to, and so... Joab, at this point, is essentially, as far as power goes, not de facto, but de jure, the king of Israel. He's even powerful over David. And now, in conclusion to this sermon, because, it, again, it repeats so many of the themes we've been looking at, we see how shakable this kingdom is, how it's just an inch from falling apart. But the thing that I wanted to bring to your attention as we close is the right relationship to the king. What was happening here 
is exactly what God predicted would happen here if he gave Israel a king. And the people did not look at the king as God's covenant head over the people. They did not look at the king in any kind of covenant way or understanding. They simply saw him as someone empowered to meet their needs. And so both Israel and Judah only served David for what they could get out of him. You realize Israel is saying we should have ten portions and Judah should have one. And now it looks like Judah's getting everything and we're getting nothing. And so both sides, it appeared, did not understand the nature of the kingship and saw it in terms of ancient Near Eastern kings. In other words, what I would say is that these, this nation, Israel and Judah, looked at the kingship of David more through the lenses of the world around them than through the Torah and the scriptures God had given his people. They saw him only in terms of human terms and what he could do for them. They did not see David in any exalted way as being anointed by God, as being set apart by God, as being established the king. They saw him as someone they could use to get what they really want. Which leads me to this. We have a king. His name is Jesus. He's God's son. His kingdom is here. Do we ever look at Jesus strictly through the lens of how is this benefiting me? How can I get a better life? Do I only pray? Do I only come to church? Do I only read the Bible looking for ways in which God can bless me? Am I so focused on blessings from God that I totally ignore the blesser? Am I so focused upon receiving gifts from God that I don't focus on the giver? Am I really using my relationship with Christ to get a better life, not to love and serve and obey and worship him? Those are hard questions that we have to ask ourselves because we can easily become consumers, and church can be just a glorified version of a Walmart. I come here... Because I need things, I need to buy $75 to $150 worth of worthless plastic things. Now, the church is not Walmart. It, it's not a shopping center. It's not come to the church. We have this health and wealth gospel, which is really no gospel at all, that permeates churches all over this city, that if you get it right and you do it right, then Jesus will bless you so that you can have your best life now. Is that what Christianity is all about? Is that what serving the king is all about? I thought he was Lord. I thought we were to bow the knee to him. I thought we were to treat him with reverence and godly fear. I thought we were to serve him, not looking for what we're going to get out of it, not looking for how we're going to be helped. As I said in Sunday school this morning, if you're looking for Jesus to make you happy, you've found the wrong person. His goal is not to make you happy. His goal is to conform you to his image so that you can experience glory, which far exceeds anything happiness could ever hope for. See, so many people 
see Jesus through the lenses of a consumer. I joined this club because this club gives me benefits. I belong to Lifetime Athletic Club, which should be called Life Crime. I hope nobody's watching. Life Crime Athletic Club because it's so expensive. I pay them. Why? Because they have the best equipment. They're not too far from my house. I like to go there. I like to work out. It's become a point of contact and ministry for me to talk to people who don't know Jesus. It happens more and more, and I'm thrilled about that. And I'm getting older, and I need to do the best I can to exercise and all those things. I pay them for benefits. I don't worship them. I don't serve them. And I'm not afraid to call them life crime because that's what they are. But that's not how it is with Jesus. That's not how it is with him. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. You see, Jesus is not simply a, a savior who's willing to give you the best. I, I remember the four spiritual laws in Campus Crusade, which we later called the four spiritual flaws, which probably wasn't wise. But what I was saying about that is, is that Jesus came that I might have life and have life abundantly defined by regarding him as my Lord, my King, my Savior. You don't argue with the King. You don't attempt to use a Lord. You show obeisance. You bow. You serve. You long to please him, not to use him. My father, who was a pretty wise man, he was really dumb when I was 16. He was the dumbest man on the planet when I was 16. At my age now, he's just growing in wisdom because I agree with him. He said, there are two kinds of people in the world, son, givers and takers. Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be a giver or are you going to be a taker? And some of us come to Christianity with this list like Jesus is some sort of cosmic Santa Claus, and that if I'm not having holy goosebumps every day and hearing angels' wings flapping, he's failing on the job. I want to tell you that Jesus is your king. He has authority over you. He loves you. He adores you. He puts up with our spiritual adultery. He doesn't kill us. He disciplines us because he loves us because he wants to turn us back to him, but not to use him. And I just see this so much. I see it in myself. As I mentioned in Sunday school today, I thought Christianity was about finding out what God wanted, doing it. It was really a covenant of works for me. I was trying to obey the Lord so that he would be pleased with me, so that he would give me what I wanted. And so the Lord sort of became a dispenser in heaven, and if I pushed the right buttons, I would get blessed. But that's using. That's using him, not loving him. Do you love him? You remember when Peter was met by Jesus after the resurrection on the seashore and they were having fish and Jesus asked Peter three times because Peter denied him three times Peter do you love me let me ask you do you love Jesus do you adore him is he the most important person in your universe 
Do you love him or do you want to use him? Two very different things. And so what we learn from this passage is David and the separation of the tribes of Israel and the shaky foundation of the kingdom was because the people of Israel had no understanding of the kind of king that was coming. And even when Jesus came, they were upset that he wasn't there to overthrow Rome to get rid of the tyranny. Come, Messiah, and do for us. Let us use you to get the kingdom in and have a better life. I want a better life. You come, deliver me from oppression. It was a horrible oppression. And I would have been the same way, I'm sure. But Jesus informed them, no, I'm not here to establish the kingdom now. I'm here to save you from your sins. I'm here not for judgment but to redeem you and to save you. Is Jesus your best friend? Is he the one when you have nothing else to think about? Do you think about him? Do you talk to him? Do you pray? Do you love him? Because we can learn from these old covenant people of God, the way they treated their king is the way we often treat our king. And may we repent when Jesus reviewed the seven churches in the book of Revelation in the first three chapters, the church of Ephesus, he said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Is Jesus your first love? Does he consume you? Is he your passion? We are so apt to turn him into a vending machine, a blessing machine. What can you do for me? Because I'm still the center of my universe. I have not yet learned that Jesus is to be the center of my universe. Have I repented of that? Lord, give us grace to repent. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. And it does seem like deja vu all over again. The same things keep happening. And the reason they do is because the king that we need hasn't come yet. And this is the best you're going to get, humanly speaking, in this fallen world that we live in. Father, I pray that we would hear the call today of the Spirit, wooing us to Christ as our first love. And we pray that we would demonstrate our love by reading your word and praying and serving others and giving ourselves to others because we know as Paul says that we no longer live our, our lives for ourselves but, but for the one who loved us and gave himself for us this we pray in the name of our Savior, and we pray that as we continue to worship, we would give as those who truly desire in the depths of our being to love you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.